0: Here's your host, Alex Garrett.
1: Today's Alex Garrett podcasting features two radio personalities. One who's made him a name for himself in Miami. One who's a local guy here in New York. Kid Curry and Frank Murano join me both with their different stories in radio. And how they adapted to where they are now. And so my first guest is Kid Curry. And Kid Curry, actually known as... Uh, real name is Kim Curry, but known on radio as Kid Curry, had been diagnosed with MS at a very early age of 50. Kid Curry, thanks for joining me today.
0: Thanks, Alex. Um, My name is Kim Curry. Uh, I was a young radio guy in my hometown of Canyon City, Colorado. As a matter of fact, my dad came home one day and asked me if I wanted to babysit the boss, uh, babysit for the boss. And I thought that he meant uh, that I was going to babysit his kids. But when I got to the radio station that day, I was told I was going to babysit the God Show. Uh, Every Sunday morning, they played the previous week's church services on the radio, and nobody wanted that job. So as a 17-year-old kid, I was the guy who ran the God Show. But, you know, every hour you're required uh, to give the station identification. Uh, So as a 17-year-old kid, I got my headphones on. I've never heard my voice on the radio before, and I cracked the microphone open. I remember exactly what I said. This is KRLN, Canyon City, Colorado, the station with the news reputation. And as soon as I heard my voice on the radio, that's what I decided I was going to be. So I went to college, uh, spent two years or so studying broadcasting. Uh, I got my oats and thought, well, I'm good enough at this. I'll go out and apply for some real radio jobs. And I got a full, uh, full-time job offer in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, I was 22 years old at the time. I was there only about six months and ended up in Miami, Florida. Uh, right after that, working over the next uh, 20-some, 25 years with some real radio legends who took me under their wing, uh, taught me a lot of stuff, 25 years goes by, and then I'm the boss. Uh, I get to be the boss. And, Kim, uh, as a radio we DJ,
1: more... were you a star? Like, were, were you well-known in Miami at that time?
0: Well, you got to kind of say yeah on that. Um, here's the reason. First of all, it was the 1970s, and there were only four or five. Well, and at that time in Miami, there were only about three current music radio stations. And I was a little guy on the radio. I called myself Kid Curry. Because the name Kim, when I first got on the radio, you can't call a guy Kim in the 70s on the radio. So I had to always come up with different radio names. And a guy I went to work for in Knoxville, my first full-time job, crowned me Kid Curry. And when he called me that, I said, I don't even like that name. I don't want to be Kid Curry. And he says, well, then I won't sign your check. That's when I met the boss. So he gave me the name Kid Curry. And I had a very youth-oriented nighttime show on top 40 radio stations in Miami, in San Antonio, in Washington, D.C., and in Baltimore. Um, So I was kind of a famous little uh, teenage DJ back then, but eventually I ended up doing the morning show. I did middays. I did afternoons. um, And after doing it for 25 years or so, I was finally granted the opportunity to be the boss. And uh, as a matter of fact, the boss of the original radio station I went to Miami to work for in 1976. I became the program director of that very same station in 1996, and we had the most success in the radio station's history over nine years. But uh, over those nine years, um, I started having some maladies, physical maladies that had actually occurred earlier in my life at times, but had never really manifested into anything. I just thought I had the flu or maybe my I needed my chiropractor to pop my back so my hands wouldn't tingle and things like that. But um, around 19, I'm sorry, around 2004, it was Christmas 2004. I came home to Colorado here to visit my mother uh, from Miami. And uh, my mom said, there's something wrong with you. Your face doesn't look right. Your eye is drooping. And at the time, I wasn't, my, the gate, my walking gait wasn't straight. Oh. And uh, something was going on with my feet and I didn't know what it was. So that all culminated into a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Uh, and in 2005, I was forced from the business with the, with the diagnosis because radio is a constant. Uh, in those days, specifically, radio is now more corporate. What you hear in L.A., you hear the same thing in towns all across America. But in the 1990s into 2000s, uh, you really had radio stations that created their own thing. And Miami is very much a market unlike any other market because of the Latin influence. So I directed the radio stations specifically at Miami. And it takes all my time. I mean, you know, there are clubs there. I had to go monitor the clubs. I had to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning to make sure the overnight person was saying the right things and playing the right music. And I'd be on the radio at 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so I worked constantly. Were you raising a family
1: at that point when you were doing all this? Yeah
0: by then, um, uh, my wife and I had gotten married. Uh, I, and I guess it was 2000. Uh, it was 2000. We got married in 2000. Uh, so we had our, we had, uh, had a child. And, um, so I was living a real hardcore life. I was working real hard. My wife and I were l- enjoying our life in Miami lakes, Florida, living on Don Shuler's golf course, huh. but, uh, things just started going bad for me physically. But when the, you know, multiple sclerosis i didn't know this i was at i was at a corporate meeting uh, over in naples florida uh, when i got the call from my doctor after all those tests the doctor finally figured out uh, what her assessment was that i had multiple sclerosis and i took that phone call at a corporate meeting uh, and then i had to drive back to miami that afternoon after i got the diagnosis and i didn't know you could die from ms because i didn't even know what multiple sclerosis was as i'm driving back on alligator alley My wife is doing the 2005 version of Google, and she's telling me all the things that MS is. And then uh, she says, wait a minute, I think you might could even die from this. So it was a mental thing for me. I mean, within a matter of a week, I retired. I got out of the business because to win like I was winning in Miami took all of my concentration. But then when I got diagnosed, the last thing I was thinking about was the radio station. And I did not want the station to falter, so I bowed out, and it went on, without the success it was having when I was in charge. But it went on, and I um, I kind of ran home to my hometown in Kansas. Well, let me tell you, I I want to say your voice hasn't
1: changed. Like you still got that strong voice. So I guess my next question would be: Is how did you maintain such a strong voice going through MS and not being able to talk? Right. So the whole thing about being in podcasting or radio is. You want to get your voice out there. So at that moment, you weren't able to because you were going through this. What was that like? How did you overcome it? And I know you went to writing as well.
0: Well, you know, as soon as I got diagnosed and I was failing fairly strong. I mean, I went from from walking with a cane to crutches into a wheelchair within a matter of two years. My condition was failing fairly rapidly uh, and it really bothered me. Uh, and along with everything else that was going wrong. My, my feet were, my toes were curling up. My eye was failing. My shoulders were hurting. My hands were curling. But my throat was also being affected. So basically, my throat was closed off. So I had all these things going on with me with multiple sclerosis for eight years. And it's all I thought about. I went from broadcasting doing what I had been doing for 33 years since my dad got the job. Suddenly, all I was concerned about was multiple sclerosis, because my condition was pretty miserable for for eight years. But then, you know, when I first got diagnosed, there were only like five drugs for multiple sclerosis. By this time, there were then eight. And my doctor decided that the drug that I was on that I had been on for years was not performing well. And we needed to try a change. So he changed me from the MS drug Rebith to Copaxone. And he's uh, he's a writer too. He's got a book out, Optimal Health with Multiple Sclerosis. He is the master of multiple sclerosis. And he believes that vitamin D is vital and, and absolutely important for multiple sclerosis patients. All humans need vitamin D and all humans' vitamin D numbers are low. It just so happens that MS patients need more than anybody else. So, he changed my drug to Copaxone. For six months, I took 5,000 IUs every day of vitamin D. And suddenly, after eight years of my condition failing, it kind of leveled off. Uh-huh. And at that point, um, it took me about two years to try to realize what was going on. All I was concerned with was I was failing. And then suddenly, I was failing no more. I wasn't getting any better. But for two years, my level of of my my condition just leveled off, which then gave me the time to try to refine me. You know, I had been a fairly important, successful radio broadcaster for years. Uh, the diagnosis of MS was another fairly tragic event in my life. So I decided I want to write. I wanted to write the story. Um, so you know, I, I. I went out and I hired a writing coach, the lady that uh, founded the Northern Colorado Writers Association up here. Uh, she is a, she's got books out. She teaches writing. So I hired her to teach me how to write. And then I became a writer. But um, the, the process, it mentally was very distressing because, you know, when you're thinking that, you know, my, my wife, I didn't know what, what was going to happen with her. I've got four kids, I've been married a couple of times, I've got four kids and worried about them. My condition was failing. And so it really bothered me for a long time. But when the condition leveled off, I had to come up with a brand new thing. I felt I had hope for the first time in eight years. So it was um, it was quite a path, uh, but I couldn't have done it without the support of my wife. My wife is, um, you know, some some people can't take tragedy like this. And I know, uh because of my meetings with men over 50 <laughs> with ms mm-hmm. that some wives couldn't take it and they left well mine has stuck with me and 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 allowed me to to reinvent myself um she supports my writing career i'm a self-published author i pay for congratulations
1: on that by the way and i gotta ask you so there's a multiple avenues of adaptation first health wise adapting to this and overcoming it uh get into that a little bit more and i know you were afraid that death was there but how did you turn tragedy into another kind of victory you know you had victory on the radio now you have victory fighting this thing so tell us about that turnaround
0: well you know my life really changed in a variety of different ways i mean not only you know you know i i it was different even getting into a wheelchair uh, because I had had walked on crutches and then I was failing miserably. I'd fallen. The doctor finally said, no, you've got to be in a wheelchair. So, you know, I had to go out and buy me a new wheelchair and that changed my thought process. And I, I, uh, in fact, when I went out to, for the first time in the wheelchair, I had a revelation because I was sitting, my wife was a realtor at the time, and they were having an office party. It was an all-white party, like Puff Daddy does those white parties. So everyone was dressed in white. And because they had all been my friends, and I rolled up to them in my wheelchair, they all crowded around, and they were all, ooh, this is really nice. Congratulations. Now you have more motion. And then the boss clinged on a glass, and he said, may I have your attention, please? And everyone turned around, and all I saw were white-clad buttocks. So my frame of reference changed. I see things from a completely different angle down here. Um, and it affected me mentally because uh, I, I didn't, I, I, I don't know. I felt, I felt lesser again. I felt, wait a minute, um, this is another punch to my gut. I'm going to be in a wheelchair looking at people's butts the rest of my life. Mm. And it was really hard mentally. But, you know, I, I also believe a lot in in mind control that you really are, you you create your destiny. And when you have a woman around you like my wife, um, see, my wife is an international business coach. Uh, She coaches every day from seven in the morning till four in the afternoon, every half hour. She coaches a business from somewhere around the world. Uh, She's a very positive person. And so you add that to my desire to always want to get better and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and be well and, and, and do something in my life. So the the two of those things, really my desire to get better and, and to do something and her desire to make sure her husband is going to be okay with her kind of positive attitude. It really is our house reeks of positivity.
1: I love and, that, Kim. I've got to ask you then, yourself yourself do you see yourself being a coach for those diagnosed with ms do you see yourself as sort of like a leader in this condition field if you will to say yes you can get through this
0: i very much um i i reach out to ms patients whenever i can uh i go to meetings uh, i i do the bikeathons uh as as much as i possibly can in fact you know what here's what i've done a couple of times i don't you know ms is not I'm diagnosed, but I know that there are people walking the streets that don't know what the problem is, and I've actually sat down with people who I can tell that they've got the same problems that I had, and I say, so how long have you had this MS? Oh, I don't think I've got MS. Well, do me a favor. Check with you, doctor, because I've got MS, and you're doing kind of some of the same things I do, and I've actually sent people to doctors just through conversation seeing what they're how they're acting and then their eye looking funny and their hand looking crazy and me going wait a minute i know what you're what you've got so i just strike up a conversation to realize they don't know and i've sent people to the doctor to find out and so i i really do what i can it's important i feel like i'm a member of a club and it was funny you know when you go to here's what happened. I get I get diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I start going to doctors. You go to the waiting room, and you sit in your wheelchair, and you kind of look at everybody. You don't really talk in the waiting room, but there's other people there. And then the doctor, after, I don't know, 10 years or so, says, you know, you probably ought to go to some MS meetings. I have a meeting group. Uh, it's uh, men over 50. Why don't you go to that meeting? I went to that meeting. Out, I'm telling you, man, it was... It was amazing, Alex, to realize that there were people just like me, that these guys were saying the things that were happening to me, mm. like, gee, uh, you know, my I reached for a glass the other day and my, my wrist just gave out, or gee, I was standing there at a business the other day and all of a sudden I, I had to pee, and and mm. these are the same things that are happening to me, my eyes dimming out, happening to me. So it was unique to be able to be in a room who had the same condition as I. I'd never spoken to anybody. I'd seen them in the waiting room, but I'd never spoken to them until I went to that to those meetings. And well, so now I have a whole group of men friends. And I go to the one over in Denver, I go to the one over here in Loveland and Fort Collins. I go to as many as I can. I'm an advocate. I want I want people to know that there is there is there is hope with MS. I what bothers me is when I go to these MS meetings and some of the men are so frustrated because these, they've tried this drug and it didn't work and they tried this drug. And then all of a sudden they say, I'm tired. I'm not going to take any drugs anymore. That hurts me. I, I don't want you to stop. I want you to keep trying because I'm a, I'm a hopeful guy. I want you, I want to give you hope. Uh, so I've, I've actually, you know, had kind of confrontations with men before who don't want to take drugs because I don't want them to give up. I think have you talked to is. women also
1: about this? Because I know that even women's insecurities are a lot more in this kind of field. So have you discussed them like, hey, you should stay on this. You should stay on this track to fight MS.
0: I, 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 my my doctor's book, I have a box of them. I give them to as many people as I pop. When I find out someone's got MS, I give them a book. That's what I do. And the first after I got diagnosed, I became friends with a young woman in my hometown who is the wife of an old high school friend i graduated with and so 30 years goes by and they're divorced but i run into this young and then she's got ms so she's been my ms buddy now for about and mm. 10, 10 years so we have you know i i do whatever i can and women you know ms affects all of us differently i always say this is my ms because what happens to me is not necessarily what happens to that ms guy or that ms person um so it it affects every one of us differently because lesions appear on different parts of the brain my the my lesions are in the the parts that affect my legs right now as i'm speaking to you my legs are seizing and sticking straight out um it all depends on where the lesion appears that's what part of the body is going to be affected uh i have a variety of lesions Um, the lesion that affects my ocular nerve on the right side of my eye got my got another lesion somewhere around my shoulder uh in my brain that that connection's not right. So we all have different types of MS. And it's important that everyone realizes that there is plenty of science out there and I believe there's going to be a cure someday. They're Kim, getting smarter the, and smarter all the time. Do you think that the whole cuz I know there's campaigns for other
1: you know conditions saying know the signs, but you don't really hear much of MS uh advocacy on the TV, especially now since COVID. So let's say someone was diagnosed with this during COVID and and maybe they were afraid to get treated. Like, did you have to help people through the pandemic as they were dealing with MS? Like, what was that like?
0: Well, MS patients, first of all, it's a very private disease. Um, people, I, I didn't want to talk about it. And all the other patients, as I've talked to them about their career with MS, no, they didn't want to talk about it. And, and so it's a very quiet, silent disease. No one really wants to talk about it. Uh, there's a TV show I'm, I'm, I'm I've been uh, binging on lately. Um, it's called Kim's Convenience. It's out of Canada. And uh, this season, the season is about the mother being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And and I thought that was amazing because she's going through the same steps we all went through where her hands are tingling and she can't get her fingers straight and she doesn't know why. And uh, you know, her eye is bothered and she doesn't know why. Well, she ends up getting diagnosed. So now we're going through this whole process on this Kim's convenience TV show. And so if you're an MS patient out there uh, we have a friend in Kim's convenience. You can kind of watch that show and, and watch that lady go through the process. It is a scary process, and and uh, but there is plenty of medical hope. I believe that. You know, people do stems. I, in fact, I I tried to get into a stem cell research program, but uh, I'm too old for it. But I believe even stem cells are are going to be some of the key to to curing this disease. I believe MS will be cured. Now the next. Maybe five to ten years. And you might play a role with your vocals and
1: your writing. Now, you mentioned earlier at 17 years old you did a religious program about God. And, and did that installation of faith, did that firstly instill faith in you at 17 years old doing that show? And secondly, has that helped
0: you get through MS, uh, the faith-based concept as well? As well, well, Alex, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you here. I am I am spiritual without religion. Uh, I don't necessarily, I'm, I, I, my faith, if I have faith, is the fact that I believe in me. I believe that I was born on this planet with a brain just like everybody else. I was given the same opportunities, and I've picked all the right things for me. I am absolutely religious without being religious. I I believe you wake up in the morning, you look out, you see the sun and you think, man, it's going to be a great day. I believe it's in our DNA to be nice to people. I believe it's in our DNA to try to do good things. So that's what I've always been brought up on. My mother was a very positive person. We were not very religious. We were always told to do good things for people because that's what we're supposed to do. And, you know, even as Muhammad Ali says, it's kind of like our, 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 that's how we pay our rent. Is to is to do good things and be nice to people, I, I, so I'm not really very very religious. I'm very spiritual in my own beliefs of the good things people have to offer and the good things we're supposed to do in life. I want people to understand that you don't have to have a religion to be good. Mm. Well, that is that is fairly true. I I agree with that. I,
1: I think. Just if you believe in a higher power and you believe in in the positivity, yes, there's a spiritual component that sometimes is missed, uh, I feel. But I'm glad that you have this path um, that you're going on and that you realize that in yourself you can do this every day and I hope others can radiate with that. Now, I got to ask you a fun question because you were a radio DJ, favorite disc you ever spun spun on radio or whatever. What, What was
0: your favorite album to play back in the day? Oh, wow. jeez. Well, here's the thing. Here's where my, my frame of reference in music is. Remember that, that when I was 17, actually when I, you know, first on Top 40 radio back in the 1970s, the hit records I listened to were Casey the Sunshine Band. Um, that's the kind of music that was out then. That's what Top 40 was playing. So now you fast forward to when I retired out of radio, I was 50 years old. My favorites were Puff Daddy, <laughs> Wyclef Jean. So my frame of reference of music has always been current music. So the current music that I hear today, I love Billie Eilish. I think she's a smart young woman. Um, I love The Weeknd. I think The Weeknd has lots to offer. So I can tell you that at the time I was on the radio, my favorites were the big hits of the day and as i've grown up i've stayed within the 18 to 34 year old age group because top 40 radio if you want to win in top 40 radio you've got to appeal to 18 to 34 year old females because remember in the car the girl controls the radio yeah so you always want to send your your top 40 radio listeners you want to make sure that you're supplying 18 to 34 year old females so i but i love classical music i love bluegrass um I'm a huge fan of, of rap. I'm sorry some people don't. I love country. I love it all. Um, so um, I'm just a music guy. Always have been, always will be. Uh, there are little songs going off in my brain all the time. I wake up to a different earworm. I sing
1: when every... I'm on my rollerblade. I sing and just start singing randomly. You know what I mean? So I feel that.
0: There are earworms. I mean, you get stuck. Something made me, the other day, it was crazy, because I woke up and I was in my mind, yeah, first, why would I be singing the days of wine and roses? I mean, that's from the 60s. What was I dreaming about to where I woke up in the morning and the first thing I thought was the days of wine and roses full of happiness. What is that? Mm. But that's what your brain does. Then I wake up the next morning, I got the Spice Girls on my mind. So There you go. Though that's, that's fun. I, well, when you were a DJ
1: and maybe it's, even more so now, but when you were a DJ, did you DJ ve- with your mood or did did your emotions not play into what you played on the air that night? Did you just do it for the listener or was there a personal feeling like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm in this mood,
0: so I'm going to play this music type of thing? In real radio, you don't play what you want. You play what the boss tells you. And you may have 18 records to choose from, but you play what the boss tells you. So my whole thing was to entertain the people in between the records. Um, I had a feature. In fact, that's why my my memoir is called Come Get Me, Mother. I'm through. Because I was on the radio in my young career from 6 to 10 PM at night, uh, I was a I was a teenage DJ. My my whole audience was little high school kids. So before I got off the radio at 10 o'clock, I would have the kids just call in and and make a comment about their school. They could rip their brother, they could make a joke about their uncle and then I'd fire back some sort of comment mm-hmm. and I would just at the end of it I'd say okay come get me mother I'm through because the little kid guy on the radio had a mom to come pick him up so it's called bed check I right that was sh- the that's how I ended my show every night was come get me mother I'm through so when I when I wrote my memoir I thought that should be the name of the book because for for 20 years every kid I ever when I was on the radio Miami and in Washington D.C. and in Baltimore at night, every kid knows those fra- that phrase. Come get me, mother. I'm through. So, hey, I'm glad you mentioned the
1: writing because that's my next question with adaptability. Going from the spoken word to the writing, from what I read in your bio, it felt like it was a bit of an adjustment. Was it an
0: adjustment for you to go from spoken word to writing? Oh yes, sir. Uh, and I can tell you that my writing coach, Kerry Flanagan. She made me read books about how to write before she would even talk to me. For six months, I had to read these books. And uh, Save the Cat Strikes Back is the one that mattered the most. Save the Cat Strikes Back. It teaches you how to write a novel, that you find a plant, you find one thing that you want to talk about, and then you weave stories that all come back to the spine of the story. So she made me read and study before she would even talk to me. And then she made me write and she would take it and then she would put the red pencil on it on the computer. You know, I get my little red pencil and she'd correct my mistakes and made me practice for six months. At the same time, I was doing the research of my life. I had to go back and go back to all the radio stations I'd worked at. Uh, some of the people I'd worked with, some of the promotions I had done with people and, and, and stars and things like that. And then so I studied for six months myself. She worked with me for six months and I researched and then I wrote for six months and every week, everything I wrote, she would be up right behind me give me the red pencil. This is not right. You got to learn how to do this. So I, I believe that I've become a much better writer. After I wrote my memoir, I wrote another book called The Death of Fairness. It's the uh, tale of what happened to a small American town and its only radio station after President Reagan rescinded the fairness doctrine. Now that was the doctrine that required equal time for contrasting points of view. In other words, if somebody went on a radio station or TV station and spouted some conspiracy, you, me, we had the right to go to that TV station or radio station and demand equal time to dispel the lie or the conspiracy. When you take that rule out, all you hear are lies, 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 without anybody debating the lies. And many people believe that the fairness doctrine being gone is why we have the division we have in America today. So that was my second book. And after I wrote that one, I just this last week completed an 85,000-word novel, which is the backup to The Death of Fairness. It's called Bonnie's Law, The Return to Fairness. So wow. I love writing now. I, this is what I do. I, I blog on my website. Give us the I, website, uh, by I, the way, because I know that you
1: have one. Give us the website for, for people to know. Uh, as
0: a matter of fact, uh, you're going to see a brand new one here next week. I've just reconditioned the whole thing. Uh it's krcurry.com what you see now if you go there might not be the same thing you see next week cuz i've just redesigned the the website so but it will always be under krcurry.com and you get information about the books that i've written about where they're available they're also uh they're on audible and at amazon so is writing the way you feel like you're
1: standing tall now in this wheelchair cuz i know that was that that sort of a thing that you deal with still today in the wheelchair does writing help you feel like elevated, like you're, you're seeing above sort of, as you say, the butts around you, if if, if
0: you will? Well, Alex, you know, I, I always used to refer to when I got diagnosed and then I, you know, the MS really hit me, you know, Kid Curry, the guy who was running the biggest, most listened to radio station in the Southeast USA, people always were, wanted to be next to me. You know, Kid Curry was the kind of guy you wanted to get close to. So, You know, I was always a kind of a famous guy. And then suddenly when I got diagnosed, people walked away from me. Because when you're on a crutch or you're in a wheelchair, people move away. So writing has once again given me that people want to be close to me. People want to know me. People want to talk to me. Now, I mean, I do podcasts a lot. Uh, people read my stuff now. So, so I've kind of like replaced my Kid Curry DJ thing where people were in- interested in the animated radio guy to now, you know, they're interested in my reading and, and I mean my writing. And and so now I've kind of, I've I've changed myself from being the broadcaster to the writer. I'm comfortable again. It took me a while to to adjust from being the guy people wanted to be close to to being the guy no one wanted to be close to and then now I feel much more comfortable because I found my place now again. Uh, I li- I love writing every day four o'clock in the morning. I'm right here.
1: But if anybody wants to relive the days of Kid Curry, can they uh, go to YouTube? Or do you have any of your old sets, you know, that you did on the air at all? Or?
0: Um. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't own my stuff. <laughs> People uh, have have put out my air checks and my tapes. So you can find these things on a source called American Air checks. Uh, you can even look on a on a, uh, a Facebook you can go to Miami One. Miami One on Facebook has a variety of different of my old pictures and a bunch of my old radio shows. It's just and but these are friends of mine who have just kind of kept the old Miami vibe together and they've put some of my old air checks up and I hate hearing them <laughs> sorry. i I don't know why people liked the kid curry show i hear it and i go what what were they hearing (laughs) what were they listening to Because i just think i was a crazy old wacky guy on the radio i hope your fans
1: now know that you reinvented yourself in this new way through writing and uh let let me know uh when else you'd like to come on i'd love to have you back on and talk about the fairness doctrine and so much else so let me know um other things happening and i'll definitely bring you back on
0: thanks alex i will be um having information my uh, the this last book bonnie's law is now being shopped with agents right now um looking to to hear something here by the first of august if not i will self publish it myself and i'll have more details on that and i'll let you know when it's going to be out et cetera okay absolutely we'll have you back uh dot com is that correct k r k r dot k r curry dot com that's me
1: krcurry.com you can find out more about this dj turned writer and someone who's an advocate and a fighter with ms so glad i had you on today and thanks for joining alex that was a lot of fun thank you very much sir thanks again kid curry we'll be back with frank Murano next on alex garrett podcasting well the big guests just keep on coming to this podcast uh i'm very thankful that they do and i'm very thankful for my next guest frank Murano, who you probably heard on this podcast before. You definitely have heard him on 970 and WABC. And I call him, more than just a radio host, my friend, Frank Marano. Thanks for coming and uh, checking in with us today.
2: Alex, thank you for having me. It's great to be on. I'm a huge fan of yours. It's been a thrill to watch your uh, professional development uh, over the last uh, six or seven years, and it's been uh, really a-, a pleasure to watch the growth of this podcast. You're doing great work, and uh, I'm thrilled to be on.
1: Frank, i got to start there because eight years ago about this time we were deba- you know, talking about the internship, and it happened, and then here we are, right? It's amazing how time hey.
2: flies. Exactly. Exactly. So it's uh, it's great to be back, and again, it's great to see you doing so well.
1: And same with you. I know the last time we talked was actually when you were leaving Nine Seventy, unbeknownst to me at the time, and going to ABC. So for maybe those who didn't, uh, they know where you are, but for maybe they don't know the backstory and everything. But how you doing? How How's that been since going to ABC?
2: I think it's going really well. I uh, I am on uh, every morning from one a.m. to six thirty a.m. The first four hours is. Uh, as a talk show called The Other Side of Midnight the uh, n- next 90 minutes is uh, sort of a news hour where Juliet Huddy and I uh, give the news of the day uh, but uh, the feedback from listeners has been great and uh, if people aren't familiar with the show hopefully they can they can sample it you can listen to the podcast at wabcradio.com but uh, but yeah it's been uh, it's been great I, I i i have no complaints
1: well when i saw and i'm glad to hear that but when i saw this story i had to jump in and get you on because you are in the radio business you do the broadcasting you're a host uh and they say that's one of the toughest jobs the most stressful jobs in america as of 2019 according to careercast.com maybe they don't count the pandemic with all this but do you find it ever stressful as a radio and broadcaster to do this night in and night out
2: always uh so it's always a great deal of fun it's never boring but it's incredibly stressful i mean uh basically to on a daily basis Come up with five and a half hours of fresh content every day is um, is something that's very uh, intimidating. I mean, om- almost my whole day goes into coming up with content for five and a half hours. Uh, additionally, you know, uh, radio and broadcasting in general, it's not exactly a field that these days is known for high salaries. So if you're interested in being able to pay your rent or your mortgage, uh, that adds another degree of, uh, of stress. But, uh, look, the people that do this, and I'm sure you can speak to this, Alex, but the people that do this really are, are hooked on it and can't imagine doing anything else. And that's certainly the case with me. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a profession that I'm honored to be able to make a living in, as stressful as it can be at times.
1: Well, and you've, you've kind of had this role of the overnight, not really producing other shows. Are you doing any production work, you know, producing-wise, like you did here?
2: Uh, just with the um, with the five and a half hours of uh, my own programs. That keeps me pretty busy.
1: I'm sure, and it's probably different than doing 430 and then getting up at 3 the next day to do another show, you know? So this is it's probably a big change.
2: But This is true. This I've, never is
1: true. At, I've never asked for this because they say reporting, you know, newspaper reporters are also under the gun and stressed out. Were you ever in the newspaper business at all? I never really asked you that.
2: No, um, not not really. I mean, I've written some op-eds and some columns uh, for different newspapers over the years, but uh, but no, I haven't. Uh, my wife uh, is a she was a newspaper reporter when I met her, and she still freelances for Newsday. But uh, but no, I I've always. Uh, gravitated more towards the talk radio realm, although uh, newspapers are uh, as, as just as tough, if not a tougher business, than broadcast journalism is these days.
1: Well, and these are two areas where people are like, well, it's going to survive. I mean, I think radio can survive. Do you think both mediums can survive in this ever-changing digital world?
2: That is such a great question, Alex, and it's one that uh, keeps me awake at night. So in terms of newspapers, I don't think um, – the traditional model of a hard copy newspaper is uh, is is something that's going to is something that's going to be survived. However, uh, that's something that's going to survive. However, I do think, and I apologize for the landscapers uh, that my neighbor has that are choosing to do their weed whacking right beside me. So I hope there's too much not too much interference. I definitely think that news sources. Uh, are going to um, survive and thrive. I think you are going to see a continued migration Towards uh, nonprofit news sources uh, like uh, ProPublica, uh, which did some great investigative work in terms of the, um, the, you know, the the super wealthy people not paying much in taxes. Uh, the The Marshall Project, which is a, a nonprofit uh, a news source that covers that covers, uh, you know, the criminal justice system, uh, like uh, WNYC. Uh, and on the right, you know, you have groups like uh, like Project Veritas, which are uh, uh... which do some great investigative journalism uh... with uh... you know from a non-profit i also think in terms of corporate media you'll continue to see entities like uh... rupert murdoch and uh... his group uh... continue to put out news sources like the wall street journal and the new york post even if those divisions of his media empire aren't necessarily uh... profitable as far as radio goes one of the things that I find very troubling is that uh, you're starting to see new cars come out that don't even have AM radio. So now that's very scary on the one hand, but on the other hand, um all of them provide uh, an immediate interface to a mobile phone or to broadband to allow you to have access to whatever streaming site that um, that you want and listen to whatever programming you want. At whatever time, so I think the challenge for us as content creators is how to make uh, our content compelling and how to get people to listen to it when they essentially have a choice of listening to uh, the, whatever they want at any time that they want. I think the the advantage that terrestrial radio has, uh, especially on a local level, is that we can be local right if you um, if you if there's a blackout, for instance. You really can't download a podcast because you have no Internet uh, to find out what's caused the blackout and why that's the case. However, you can turn on 970 a.m. or 770 a.m. and find out the latest on why there's a blackout, when the power is going to be restored. And that's something that I don't know that uh, that uh, podcasts and uh, satellite radio and other sources are ever truly going to be able to compete with. So I think radio still has a few tricks left up its sleeve. Uh, but I think ultimately radio's fate is going to be decided by those of us that work in it to see if we can create content that's still compelling enough to get people to tune into.
1: Frank, you just mentioned a couple minutes ago how the cars are not picking up AM, but you can always get online. But aren't the rating systems still based on the AM dial? Like, isn't that still how we get ratings in this business? Uh,
2: well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the way ratings are measured is, uh, is you know, there's a sample group in every market uh, that wears a device called a PPM or portable people meter, and the portable people meter automatically picks up what you're listening to. So uh, rather than pick up that you're listening on uh, 970 AM, it'll pick up that you're listening on AM970TheAnswer.com and the live stream through the app. So um so I, I think it will uh, change the game to some extent, but in terms of how ratings are measured, uh, I don't know that, uh, that it would change it significantly.
1: Well, I was just thinking that um, uh, how, well, first of all, I was just thinking of how you do these, you know, previews every night. Do, do you still do those things where, like, you do the fancy video before the show starts? Is that cut down? Because I, I miss seeing those, actually.
2: Well, not necessarily every night, but as much as I'm able, as much as I'm able.
1: And you still have a foothold at 970. You're on with John Katz. So what's it like to still be on here, even in that capacity?
2: Well, it's terrific. Look, um, you know, th- working six days a week, as I'm sure you can attest, Alex, you're one of the hardest working people that I know. Working six days a week is exactly the same as working seven days a week because that se- that seventh day, you're norm you're generally preparing for for other stuff uh, that you're doing on the other six. So uh, it's great to be on with John Katzenmatthes every uh, every Sunday morning from eight to eight thirty, and it's uh, it's a great way to be in touch with the people that are early risers on a weekend as well as the people that uh, that stay up late at night during the week so it's it's wonderful we get to hash out all the local news all the national news and uh... it's always a great conversation whenever you have john and Murtavius, uh... who often comes from different political perspectives
1: by the way speaking of local we'll get to the race in a minute because this mayoral race it seems like it's getting a little more heated up by the day you can to that you know because you're you're watching it as well but I gotta say, new ownership at ABC, new new ownership at the Mets. I mean, it seems like there's a parallel there, isn't there? Because both are being
2: wildly well, successful. Uh, look, uh, look, I'm I'm uh, the so far so good in both cases. Uh, WABC's numbers are up, and the Mets are having a, a great season, and it's ex- an exciting team to watch. So uh, so far so good in both cases.
1: And I mention that because I know that your show isn't based around sports, but I know you love the Mets. That's one of your things, isn't it?
2: I am a huge Mets fan, and it has been great to see. I mean, the pitching that we've seen from the Mets, I would venture to say, has been um, maybe the best pitching ever, and I am including um, the you know the era in which we had Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Nolan Ryan, and so forth. Uh, I've never seen um, such dominant pitching performances like this. I mean, even the pitchers that are not, um, our top pitchers, uh, you know, Daniel Peterson, for instance, he's able to continue to dominate. I mean, it's just really it, it's just a, a sight to behold. Uh, there are certainly some things to figure out for them, but uh, I think uh, given where they are still in first place at this point, it's a lot better than a lot of us Met fans could have hoped for.
1: Now, as a newsman also, you know, you've seen them in the news with this whole M O B memo, pitchers getting hurt left and right. Uh, do you find sports is in the newsroom, Far too much, or are the you know what's the balance like for that uh, coverage?
2: Um, well, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I get. I'm not sure. I completely uh, understand sure. your question. Well,
1: basically, I mean, do you ever cover sports on the show? And also, do you think sports is worth covering as a news topic as well? Do you find that intersection a lot more these days?
2: well uh, so I cover sports and comment on sports when there's a nexus between um, between sports and the rest of the news cycle uh, for instance the decision Major League Baseball made to pull out of Georgia and boycott Atlanta and the all-star game over their um, election reform law that's an area that transcends beyond sports you know sports teams choosing not to play because there's a police shooting in uh, Milwaukee that's an area that transcends uh, beyond sports uh, LeBron James um, having no problem uh, criticizing President Trump but refusing to say anything that 's critical of China and criticizing the Houston Rockets GM when he s- tweets something pretty innocuous about standing with the protesters in Hong Kong. those are all areas in which um, you know in which sports kind of jumps off the sports pages, and those are the areas that uh, that generally interest me the most. Obviously, you have a lot of issues related to ethics in sports. This comes up all the time with performance-enhancing drugs. Also came up with the Astros cheating scandal, and you also have it uh, coming up uh, with this new sticky substance that they're banning in uh, in Major League Baseball. So uh, those are the areas that uh, that I tend to focus on.
1: But I know you also do so much more on the other side of Midnight. I love that title, by the way. It's so cool.
2: Yeah, i got to give our owner, John Katsimatidis, credit for that.
1: But do you feel that effect, like in the sense of people after midnight still calling you up? How's that, like getting calls at like 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning?
2: Well, we get some wacky folks uh, calling at that time, but I wouldn't have it any... You know, if I wasn't on the radio at that time, I'd be listening to the radio at that time, and uh, I kind of feel a, um, a kinship with the people that are up late listening, either because they're suffering from insomnia or because they're, uh, they're, they're, they're working odd hours or whatever the case may be. So uh, I love it. It's terrific.
1: All right, so I think the million-dollar question for you now is because you're in radio and we did lose Rush Limbaugh. How does radio overcome that loss of such a stature? Because I think that was a thing that held radio together, wasn't it?
2: Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think w- in terms of what you're seeing in the rush replacements um, Dan Bongino in some markets, uh, Travis, uh, you know, Buck Sexton, and uh, I think his name is Travis Clay in other markets. I think it's Dana Loesch in other markets. I don't think you're going to see anybody in middays dominate um... to the tune of six or seven hundred stations the way that rush did so i think that kind of midday monopoly is is over um, i think ultimately it's going to come down to content i mean um... the thing that that made rush so successful and i would agree with you that he was a pivotal part of saving the a m band uh... in the nineteen nineties what made rush so successful is that he was entertaining he was funny and uh, he was uh, different and he was creative so i think the challenge for broadcasters in addition to competing with all these other places where people can get content podcasts and everything else it's going to be to be entertaining uh, if um, any of these commentators think they're going to come on and just pontificate about politics and think that's going to be sufficient to hold an audience i think they're going to be really disappointed i think the key is being uh being engaging and entertaining the way that rush was
1: well and that's uh that's the thing you can't really yell at the listeners because he never did that in my from what i heard he always en- ga- you know engage them but frank for you you know how do you de-stress we talked about talk about the stress level of this how do you de-stress maybe you can give other broadcasters not sure how to distress some tips here
2: uh it's a good question well look I do have a uh, a a drinking habit that's larger than it should be. I uh I, I do enjoy a, a nice cigar on occasion and um you know I like to read. Uh so uh, when nice weather like we've been having to me nothing better than um sitting on our front porch and uh you know smoking a cigar and uh, and reading a book. So that's uh that's a lot of what I uh, that's that's a lot of what I like to do, and you know, quite frankly, I enjoy listening to radio. It's one of my great uh, my great pleasures in life, and uh, that's what I end up doing quite a bit.
1: Well, by the way, speaking of reading, whenever you find a book, do you find like sentences or even a paragraph and say, I'm going to talk about that on the radio show? Do you ever find what you read make it to the air uh, for your shows?
2: All um, all the time, all the time. Uh, and that's, uh, the, you know, it's a frequent source of content for me.
1: Well, that's very cool. All right, so other things about this job and, and, and your role with ABC that, that maybe people don't know that, that that you can give us some insight on?
2: Um, well, I, you know, I, I think uh, I think that's about it, uh, Alex. I mean, the uh, the the uh, nocturnal hours, the interesting callers, the uh, struggle to come up with five and a half hours of content a day. That's uh, that's really that's really about all there is to it. Uh, I mean, uh, that, you know, that's uh, that's pretty much the Sloan town skinny of it.
1: Well, t- doing a daily five-hour plus show, do you ever feel like the likes of Bob Grant or Looking Over You or Joe Franklin? Because I know you idolize those guys a lot. Do you ever feel more appreciation for what they did doing it right now?
2: Well, I think I had a pretty good appreciation for it, even at the time I was listening to those guys. Um, Bob, uh, except for, I think, a very brief period when he was on OR in the uh, 70s, I don't believe he ever really did um, much at night. He did late nights, but he never did overnights. Uh, Barry Farber and Joe Franklin, they certainly did do overnights. And uh, uh, you know, I would, uh, when they were alive, I would talk with them a great deal about getting, um, getting lifestyle advice. And uh, you know, ultimately, it's never really—it's not the kind of thing that you ever really fully address to. But. Um, But I can't imagine, um, you know, uh, doing anything else. It's a lot of fun, and uh, uh, you have the freedom to do a lot of experimenting, to do a lot of wacky things, to do a lot of different things, and it's a freedom that you don't necessarily have in mornings or middays. So um, I've always had an appreciation for the work of all the folks that you just mentioned, um, and uh, I I don't think necessarily that doing this – has given me a greater appreciation. Well, I remember
1: you did one time on the air you had like a taste test here at the studios. I was like, this is so cool that you're doing that. All right, now the big question, because we know you're big into politics. I'm not sure how much of the show is covering the mayoral race, but knowing you, I know you're covering it because you are New York City. You got that New York City beat in you. So what are you thinking about this mayoral race? It's a pretty big deal, isn't it?
2: Well, it certainly is. I would, you know, our, our friend Arthur Idala said to me uh, about a year and a half ago, he said, and I think he was right, and his words have haunted me ever since then. He said, I think for the first time in my life, who gets elected mayor next time is actually more important to my life on a daily basis than who gets elected president next time. And um, I think he is right about that. I think whoever the next mayor is, is facing a New York City that is facing a great deal of challenges, and um, is real. it's really going to be pretty interesting to see... Whoever the next mayor is, how they take us through all these challenges. I don't think there's been a time in our history, including during the fiscal crisis of the 70s, including after September 11th, where New York has faced so many different challenges simultaneously. Uh, I'm supporting our, uh, our former colleague, Curtis Lewa. I've been trying to help him with his candidacy as much as possible. Uh, on the Democratic side, uh, there's a lot of other uh, there's a lot of interesting candidates with some interesting ideas uh, i certainly can see the appeal of some of the things eric adams says some of the things andrew yang says i've always had a fondness for catherine garcia she always struck me as a uh, an effective manager the candidate that frightens me the most on the democratic side have, is maya wiley i think uh, whether it's criminal justice issues or uh, budgetary issues or anything else i think she would take the city in a very um negative direction and i'm i'm hoping she doesn't win uh... but uh, we'll see what happens i'm hoping even though this is a democratic city that curtis is able to be competitive in the general election
1: well frank you and i walk around with him like he's big in new york Like people may not realize this but whenever we're walking with him people are like, hey curtis what's going on i mean you, that still happens today
2: a- absolutely i think it happens on a on a daily basis and that's one of the reasons I think people that are writing Curtis off as a uh, sideshow with no chance of winning are really doing so at their own peril, because I don't think they understand the tremendous amount of crossover appeal and name recognition that Curtis has in this city amongst all sectors of the populace, including a lot of Democrats and independents. So I think it's a great point that you bring up, and I agree. Now, on Curtis's
1: front still, you know, he um – I was waiting for this moment. I don't know about you, but I was waiting for the moment where he would finally run for office. It just felt like it was leading to that, didn't it?
2: Yes. I I think he's been preparing his whole life for this, from his time um, working in a McDonald's, from his time um, picking up trash uh, with the Rock Brigade, from his time uh, certainly running the Guardian Angels. Uh, I agree with you. And certainly his time on the radio, in which he's been commenting on every public policy issue of consequence that this city has faced over the last 30 years. I think he's been preparing for this for decades.
1: Yeah, and by the way, on Maya Wiley, just a note, uh, she wants to keep the $1 billion cut to the NYPD and and probably do more damage. So yeah, let's let's stay away from her. But does ranked choice voting give candidates that you wouldn't think a chance have a chance now?
2: Another great question. My answer is I think it does, all right? If this was just, if this was the rules as they were about four years ago, where a candidate has to win forty percent uh, or the top two candidates would end up in a runoff i don't think there'd be a realistic chance of um, of catherine garcia being the nominee but now with ranked choice voting i think because a lot of voters may end up ranking her as their second choice i think you could see a situation where garcia does not end up with um, um the most first choice votes but because a lot of folks tend to rank her second, I think she could actually end up as the nominee. So I think the answer to your question is yes. I think it does keep a lot of candidates that wouldn't traditionally be in the race in the race. I don't like
1: throwing a lot of sports references out there, but it's almost like adding two wild cards to the playoffs, isn't it? It just, it has that kind of feeling.
2: I, I think you're exactly right.
1: So, Frank, in this pandemic, you get married a, like literally a few months before it happens, but broadcasting during a pandemic – I'm sure you never really thought you'd experience that in your lifetime
2: well, you know that's the thing with being on radio alex is um you c- you don't expect a lot of what uh, of what happens on a- on a daily basis, whether it's terrorist attacks, mass blackouts, uh shootings at city hall, pandemics uh race riots you just you can never it's just every day um, is a bundle of unpredictability uh so uh, it's certainly been an interesting year-and-a-half that's for sure
1: and uh, where can people find you I-, I know you tell it all the time but where can people find you what's your socials
2: uh... so people could find me on twitter at frank morano that's frank m-o-r-a-n-o uh... they could find me on facebook at facebook.com slash morano fan facebook.com slash m-o-r-a-n-o fan or uh... on instagram at uh, morano vision that's m-o-r-a-n-o vision uh... so i appreciate the opportunity to mention it and uh, I appreciate the great work that you're doing, and I hope you'll have me back soon.
1: Definitely. One last thing, because I know you cover this on the other side in Midnight UFOs. Are they really going to be uh, hearing on them this, you know, this month? I mean, this is crazy that that's even going to be in the congressional eye. Is is it? Isn't it a bit crazy?
2: Well, the, the, just this week, the uh, the House Intelligence Committee got a briefing from both the FBI and the Navy on what's going to be in this report that's coming out this month. Uh, I, I think a lot of your listeners may be aware that... Um, as part of the COVID bill they put into provision that indicated that the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies had to disclose what they knew by the end of this month. So uh, ultimately, based on what we're seeing um, in The New York Times and elsewhere about what's likely to be in this report, they're saying that uh, there are a lot of objects in the sky which the government simply can't explain. So I think the big question is, unlike what we've been asking for the last 40 or 50 years, which is not – um, do do these objects exist, whether you call them unexplained aerial phenomenon or UFOs, but what are they? Clearly, um, these objects do exist. Uh, the Pentagon has confirmed the authenticity of a lot of these videos. So the question becomes, what are they? And um, that's the question that I think really... Um, those of us in the media and a lot of folks in government need to be working hard to find the answers to because I don't think the forthcoming report is going to have uh, that answer.
1: Well, I'm sure you'll be covering it on the other side of midnight at uh, on WABC. But thanks for stopping by in between shifts, if you will, to talk to me with, uh, on this podcast.
2: Anytime, Alex. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, best, best of luck to you and to your audience. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon.
1: Thank you, and definitely going to see you soon, no doubt about that. No doubt, this has been an electric podcast today from Kid Curry. Yes, quite a career, making a career now as a writer and as an advocate for those who have MS, having it himself and fighting it and surviving it, overcoming it every day. And then Frank Morano, our local buddy, local town, local friend, Uh, he also has, and you should look this up, uh, been a very strong advocate for those who have psoriasis, and, and that's a worthy cause as well. So we all go through things and we all overcome, we all adapt. And uh, thank you to both Kid Curry and Frank Morano for telling their stories today on Alex Garrett Podcasting.